Remember, he's making a comparison here in this section of the part of us that's been turned into a new creation in Christ versus the sinful flesh that still remains. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Romans 7. Pastor Pilgrim is going to be back next Sunday, uh, but today we are going to continue in our study of Romans. I hope you were encouraged last week from Ryan Tansky in Psalm 139. I thought he did a great job, uh, was really blessed by the sermon that he brought. But we are in Romans 7. It's going to be hard to top, yes, yes. We are in Romans 7. We're going to be reading from verses 7 through the end of the chapter. We did this two weeks ago. Uh, today we're going to be focused on the second half, verses 14 through 25, but we'll read this whole section again just to give us some context. So I hope you're there, hope you're turned and ready to follow along. Verse 7 says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war, against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we come before you in reverence this morning, recognizing that this is your holy word. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach us this morning. Open our minds and our hearts to understand what is a difficult passage, Lord. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would protect me from saying anything that would be an error or be contrary to who you are. And most of all, we ask that you would change our minds, change our hearts, conform us to your image and who you are, and help us to understand who we are in you, what you have done. And so it's with joy and anticipation that we hear from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we start, let's be reminded, as we often are, that this truly, friends, this truly is the Word of God that we hold in our hands. God created us. He created this universe. And as creator, he has authority to mold his creation for his purposes. He's not stayed silent. He did not create the world and then say, okay, good luck. I will see you later. No, he gave us his Word, and his Word has authority. It has authority for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We know that his word is sufficient, meaning that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. We know that his word is inerrant and infallible. That means that it's absolutely true and we can trust it. It's totally trustworthy. And we know that the word of God is active. It's alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's cleansing, it's nourishing, and it's sanctifying. So may he direct our lives this morning as we look at the second part of the law, sin, and believer. And you will remember, if you were here uh, two weeks ago, in chapter 7, we were looking at the role of the law. What is its purpose? And Paul quickly establishes from the beginning of chapter 7 that the believer is now dead to the law through the body of Christ. He says that we've been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Uh, Even previously in chapter 6, Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but you are under what? Grace. Grace. That's right. But we've seen this Jewish objector come forward with a couple questions. And he's challenged Paul. He's he's accused Paul of saying that the law is sinful and that the law brings death. How can you speak about the law like this, Paul, he says? Well, the apostle answers these questions clearly and firmly. He says, by no means, absolutely not, certainly not, no way. And then starting in verse 7 through the end of the chapter, Paul proves his answer by using his salvation experience as an example. And two weeks ago, in verses 7 through 13, we learned what the law can do. And we saw four aspects of it. We saw that the law reveals sin. We saw that the law provokes sin. We saw that the law crushes the sinner under its weight. And we saw that the law shows the absolute sinfulness of sin, how wretched sin is and how wretched we are. But now, as we continue through the rest of the chapter, we're going to see Paul expound on his desire to obey the law as a believer, and yet he finds that he cannot do it. He can't do it. His eyes have been opened previously to the reality of his sinful nature, and now they are opened to the new nature, to the new life that he has been given. 
But as we're going to see, and as we just read, it's not all victory and just like, yay, high five. It's not high fives. No, there is this bitter war going on in himself. In fact, there's not much hope in this chapter at all, really. On the contrary, we see the apostle lamenting and bemoaning the fact that the struggle is so strong. In fact, some of these statements, and we see in this section, and I mentioned this before, uh, is that there's been a lot of debate. There's been much debate over who is this person that Paul is describing. Can it really be the Apostle Paul himself? Can it really be a believer? Well, before walking through these verses, I think it's important for us to establish, okay, who is Paul talking about? Well, throughout history, there's been around three views in this passage. Uh, First, that this cannot describe a believer. Uh, Second, that no, this is a believer, and it's Paul giving us his experience. And third, that it's a believer, but barely, maybe not, but just barely barely, some sort of transitional period where they're still waiting to receive the second blessing of sanctification. Well, let me put that third option out of your mind right away. There is no second blessing of sanctification. Uh, Justification and sanctification, although they are separate, they are linked together. As soon as we repent and believe, the Holy Spirit indwells us and he begins his work. And chapter 6 begins Paul's discussion on sanctification. And right away he says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. He says, How can we who died to sin still live in it? We have been united with Christ and the death he died. We just sang that. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. So we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So no, there is no second tier to move into to start your sanctification. Holy Spirit starts that right away. Well, for those who are uh, believe that this passage is talking about an unbeliever, they would point out the apparent contradictions between chapter 6 and between chapter 7. Valid questions. How can one be sold under sin? How can a believer be sold under sin? How can a believer have nothing good dwelling in them, as Paul says? How can we be held captive to the law of sin in verse 23? How could a believer describe himself in such despair to say, oh, wretched man that I am? How can a believer say that? Because chapter 6 clearly says that sin has no longer any dominion over us, that we are not slaves of sin anymore, but we are slaves of righteousness, and that we've been set free from sin, and we've become slaves of God. However, I do not believe this is the correct view either. As we look at the whole context of the book of Romans, it's clear that Paul is describing a believer, and he's using himself as an example to show how the law cannot sanctify. He's in this middle of the section uh, on sanctification, and he's going to describe the battle that we have with ongoing sin. And so in these verses, we see a person who hates the sin he is committing and desires to obey God's law. We see a humble attitude admitting that nothing good dwells in him. He recognizes that sin is there, but that is not all that is there. There is a new desire in him to do the right thing. 
And he gives thanks to Jesus, and he calls him Lord. These are things that an unbeliever does not do at all. They cannot. They cannot. The Puritan writer, Thomas Watson, he wrote a classic book. It's called A Body of Divinity. And he says this, Sanctification is an antipathy against sin. A hypocrite may leave sin, yet love it, as a serpent casts its coat, but keeps its sting. But a sanctified person can say he not only leaves sin, but loathes it. He hates it. And this is what we see in chapter 7. Paul has already established that the unbeliever does no good. He hates God's law. And there's no internal war within. Romans 1 describes the state of unbelievers, doesn't it? They suppress the truth. They do not honor God. They became fools and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. They are haters of God. And although they know what is right, there is no internal war. They willfully give themselves over to sin. And this is not the person described in Romans 7. This person delights in the law of God, praises the Lord Jesus Christ, and desires to serve him. And we also see Paul here switching to use the present tense. In the previous verses, he has used the past tense to describe his past experience of how the Holy Spirit opened his eyes. Now he uses the present tense to describe his present experience. So we're going to be moving through these verses from the perspective that this is a believer that Paul is describing. A believer that is understanding his struggle with sin and desire to overcome it. And one final thought. As we go into this difficult section, it's important that we have the right attitude when we come to passages like these. Our fleshly, fallen, sinful bodies, our enemy would love us to give up and say, oh, man, I, just, I can't understand this standard. It is too confusing. Let's just move on. But that should not be our attitude. This should show us our reliance on the Holy Spirit and drive us to do the good work of studying God's word. Because we live in a lazy time, don't we? Give us, give us a sermon with a lot of jokes, current cultural examples, movie quotes, and then some of a biblical lesson, and that will be fine with us. But friends, we are not called to stay as babes in Christ. No, we are not. Don't give up. Don't give up. The more you study, the more you will learn, the more you will grow. The difficult subjects may seem insurmountable at first, but with more study, you'll find that you'll begin to understand it. And this is a little bit of longer introduction for us, but it's necessary this morning for us to understand this text. Now, if you would like to take notes this morning, we're going to have these points as our heading to break down these verses. Uh, the last section, we focused on the law, and the law is still in view here. It's, this is this whole section, but Paul's describing a war that's going on. He mentions it, and so I took that idea to, to make up my points this, this week, so we're going to see the war within. We're going to see Paul drill down further and show us the war with indwelling sin, and then we're going to see finally the war with the law. So our first point and our first verse in verse 14 Look at it with me again. Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Well, the word for here, it shows us that Paul is about to explain further what he said in verse 13. That the law does not bring death, sin brings death, and in fact, the law shows us how sinful we really are. 
Here in verse 14, Paul starts this thought to expound on that point. And his main thrust in this section is not as much to show us his personal experience, although he does, and it's important, but he wants to show us that in our flesh, we cannot obey God's law. And he once again refers to God's law in a very positive light. He calls God's law spiritual. And spiritual, that's something that comes from God, it belongs to God, and it reflects who God is. That's what the law is. It's spiritual. It's something that comes from him, it belongs to him, and it reflects who he is. But then, very quickly, we see this war begin. He says, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And this is a very concerning statement. How can a believer be sold under sin? Well, it's amazing how important little prepositions are. Notice here that Paul says that he is of the flesh, not in the flesh. Look back at verse 5, because this is how Paul describes a person before salvation. Verse 5, he says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which is held as captive. This is a very important distinction, very important. And it shows us the reality of the struggle within us. Although we live in a fallen, sinful body that has not been perfected and glorified, we are not bound by this and we are not enslaved by it. We are not in the flesh, but unfortunately, the flesh is still in us. You could look at it that way. We are not in the flesh, but the flesh is still in us. And that's why Paul says later in verse 18 that nothing good dwells in me. And he says, in my flesh. He's making the important point, friends, of our position in Christ versus our condition. Our position is one that has been freed from sin. But our condition is that we still live with flesh that is sinful, with a sinful body. And we're going to war with this until our body is glorified. And other translations here, they use the word carnal, and that's the Greek word sarkikos. And the most common way it's used in Scripture is to define it as being controlled by our fallen human nature rather than the spirit. If you just flip a page over, and maybe it's on your same page as your Bible's open, but in Romans 8, verses 7 through 9, this is the most common use in Scripture. Look at that with me briefly. Verse 7 of Romans 8, Romans 8 says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not, to submit, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are, look at this, in the flesh cannot please God. They can't because they are unbelievers. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the what? The Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Big difference here. Of the flesh and in the flesh. And Paul describes the believers in Corinth in 1 Corinthians in a similar way. Look at this. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. But who are they? They are infants in Christ. They are believers. They are in Christ. I fed you with mild, not solid food for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for you are still of the flesh. And so this brings up another question for us. We are establishing that this passage is describing a believer, but is this describing Paul at the height of his spiritual maturity? 
the height of his spiritual walk or at the beginning? Is he brand new? Or is it something that's ongoing? And my study would lead me to believe that this is describing an ongoing battle, but that we should not be in a state of paralyzation and despair. And this verse helps to lead me to that conclusion because I say this because Paul is not happy with where he is at. He agrees that the law is good, but he describes himself as fleshly, as carnal, sold under sin. This is not the state that he wants to be in, but he is at war with it. And in describing the Corinthian believers, he is disappointed that he has to address them in this way, as babes in Christ, as carnal, that have not grown much at all. Because we look at God's word, the exhortation in scripture is to walk in the spirit, to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, to not fall back into fear, but to live as who we are, sons and daughters of the king. We have been foreknown. We have been called. We have been predestined. We have been justified, sanctified, and glorified. That is who we are. And although we will never be free from this war within on this earth, we must have the proper understanding of who we are. We live in light of that, always praising the Lord for his great grace in spite of our great sin. But now let's deal with this phrase, sold under sin. And so properly understanding that we are of the flesh, but not in the flesh, that really helps us here. And we must always interpret scripture with scripture, and in verse 23, Paul makes it clear that sin dwells in my members in verse 23. And he's talking about his physical body here, not his spiritual state. John MacArthur, uh, in this section, he says that Paul refers to that lingering part of his unredeemed humanness that is still sinful and consequently makes war warfare against the new and redeemed part of him, which is no longer sin's prisoner and is now its avowed enemy. There's other examples in scripture as well. David in Psalm 51, what do you say? He said, my sin is ever before me. It's right there. It's always there. David says in verse five that he has been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. 1 John 1 clearly says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves in the truth and it's not in us. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him, talking about God, a liar and his word is not in us. Another preacher, Thomas Scott, preaching the Church of England in the 1800s, he said this, when a believer compares his actual attainments with the spirituality of the law and with his own desire and aim to obey it, he sees that he is yet to a great degree carnal in the state of his mind and under the power of evil propensities from which, like a man sold for a slave, he cannot wholly emancipate himself. He cannot wholly free himself from that state. And we said this last time that sin is so wretched and so powerful that it can pollute something that is good, like God's law. And even with a believer, it hangs on and frustrates our inner desire to do what is right before the Lord. Now, verses 15 and 16, they give us the proof and the practical outworking of what Paul is saying. Look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. 
So let's be careful when we read these verses not to add extra words to this sentence. Okay, because Paul is not saying that he never does anything good and he always does something wrong. That is not true at all. What he is doing, he, he's expressing his inner war right here. He's saying, I know what's right. I want to do the right thing. And we've all been here, haven't we? If you are a believer this morning, you have this internal war. And if you've been struggling with sin, maybe past sins or an ongoing sin, you've cried out in frustration. Why am I doing this? I know it's wrong. I don't want to do it. Lord, you got to help me. That's that inner war that's happening. The Greek word here for the word understand, it has the idea of knowing someone in a very intimate way. And Paul knows very strongly. He knows the right thing. And he says a similar phrase in Galatians 4.9. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? He's saying you know what is right. In fact, you know God, and even deeper, he knows you. Why go back to the former life? Why? That's what Paul's getting back, getting to in our passage here. He was not able to completely fulfill God's law. He has a strong desire to be able to do that, but here he is realizing that he's unable to live up to the Lord's perfect standards. And I think, again, this without a doubt shows us that this is a believer speaking. We see a humble attitude of honesty, similar to the father who brought his demon-possessed child to Jesus in Mark 9. We read this in our same page summer just recently. What did he say? He said, Lord, I believe what? Help Help my unbelief. It's the same attitude here. Lord, with all my heart, I desire to follow and obey you, but I cannot do it perfectly. Well, verse 16 takes us back to our previous section, that the law is holy and righteous and good. And and Paul is saying here once again that the problem is not with the law, it's with me. And this is his new nature talking here, because what unbeliever says the law is good? What unbeliever says that? He says, I agree with the law that it is good. No, the unbeliever makes himself a law and becomes the critic of God's holy standards. I love Ray Comfort's ministry, Living Waters Ministries. If you don't know Ray Comfort, I encourage you to go look him up to watch some of his evangelism resources. The first question he always asks out on the street to somebody is, do you consider yourself a good person? And 99% of the time, They answer, yes, I do. Why do they do that? Why do they say yes? Because they're evaluating themselves to their own standards, not in light of God's law, but to a standard of, well, you know, I haven't murdered somebody, so I'm doing all right. Well, the unbeliever will justify himself with other standards, but the believer has been justified by the one who sets those standards. The believer understands his or her position in Christ and says, no, no, I could never live up to that, but I can tell you about someone who did. 
And as we grow in our walk with the Lord, we come to understand and to love God's good law more and more. We desire the Holy Spirit to work in us. And as he does, he gives us a deeper understanding of God's holiness and majesty and a greater desire to obey God's law, not out of compulsion, but out of love. And so first we see a war within ourselves. We have new life that's been given and we have freedom from sin, but we also live in a fleshly body that is polluted by sin. But next we see another war, the war with indwelling sin. So after establishing a general explanation of the war within us, Paul drills down further at these verses and he's going to show us how the sin that dwells within us affects our decisions. Look at verse 17. He says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so we must be careful when we look at verse 17. Here's what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that he's somehow not responsible for his own actions. He's not blaming the devil or somehow uh, separated himself from his body claiming innocence. He's not doing that. There was a school of thought during this time. It was known as Gnostic dualism, and it plagued the early church. It was addressed a couple times in the New Testament, both by John and by Paul. But the Gnostics taught that the spirit world was good and that the, e uh, the physical world, including our bodies, were evil. And having this belief led to a downgrade of sin and morality. And so they justified sin by saying, well, it just comes from my body, but my spirit inside is not touched by sin at all. And so they said, well, you know, since our body is decaying, it's going to die and be destroyed anyway, we might as well just live it up and not be held responsible for our actions, just sin. But we already mentioned in 1 John earlier how John clearly addresses this. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. That's what Paul is not saying. What he is saying is that there has been a major change in his life. I have something now, he says that wants to identify with the law and agree with the law. He dislikes and he hates what he does. And this is a struggle that's never found in an unbeliever. The unbeliever doesn't know it. The unbeliever is one in thought and in action. He has a conscience given, him to, given to him by the Lord, and it troubles him, but he wishes it wasn't there. It annoys him and it frustrates him. The unbeliever is united against his conscience. He's not able to say what Paul says. He doesn't condemn his conscience, even though his conscience tries to condemn him. And that's why sin in our society is so often blamed on outside forces, not what's going on in our own hearts. We blame sin and problems on, what do we do? We blame it on poverty. We blame it on our upbringing or our parents' or a lack of education. We hear this all the time. Well, we just need to educate people. We just educate them, then they'll shape up. But no amount of education is going to save a sinful society. Only when addressing the sin that dwells within will there be a difference. And this is a such important statement on sin, that it dwells within us. It reminds us that we are born with a sinful nature. And the problem is not with the outside. The problem is with us and the sin that dwells inside of us. But when our sinful heart is dealt with by the blood of Christ, when it's cleansed, washed white as snow, 
Galatians 2.20 shows us the result. This is a verse we should all have memorized. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I. Notice that's a similar phrase that, that we're here. It's no longer I who do it. He says here in Galatians, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In my study this week, I read two illustrations on this that I thought explained it well. Uh, the first is that sin is like an exiled king who no longer is reigning, but he's still around. He's still living. He survives. So sin no longer resides in our innermost self. Our rock-hard hearts have been replaced by a heart of flesh, but it still finds the place to live in our sinful bodies, in our unredeemed humanity that remains until we meet the Lord. Galatians 5.17 says that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And the second illustration, it compared our Christian life to somebody who wants to be a great painter. And he's got this great scene in his mind that he wants to paint, but he has absolutely no talent. And so when he comes to paint, the only thing he can paint is stick figures and stick trees. He just can't get it out. And so the problem is not with the scene. It's not with the canvas, the brushes, the paint. No, the problem is with the painter. The problem is with the painter. And that is why we need Jesus to remove our sins and to work in us through his power. Only then can anything beautiful be made. In John 15, in the great passage where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. In verse 5, he says what? Apart from me, you can do nothing. We must abide in him. And only then can we walk in Christ's own power and in his own spirit. Well, verse 18 continues on this thought. Verse 18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. We'll just stop there for a second. In many translations, you'll notice, and you may have them, um, that that phrase, in my flesh, is in brackets. It's in parentheses. And Paul does that to make sure that we understand that the me in this verse is not the same as the I in verse 17. So track with me. I know the pronouns can sometimes be confusing. But the I in verse, or the me in this verse, that's the part of Paul that has been redeemed. The part who desires to obey and serve the Lord. The other part, the I, in which nothing good dwells, that's his sinful humanity, which has not yet been transformed and glorified. It's important to see those distinctions there. Well, continuing in verse 18, we see that he has a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And like I mentioned before, Paul is not totally incapable of serving the Lord and doing good. He is saying, though, that he is totally incapable of fulfilling the requirements of the law perfectly of God's law. Look at it, Philippians 3, 12 through 14. He explains it this way as well. A good parallel passage. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or am perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
and I mentioned this before in the last sermon, as we grow in the Lord, we grow in our hatred of sin, and we have an increased desire for righteousness, for what is good. And a great example of this is, again, David. And we're not going to look, we don't have time to look at these psalms, but if you jot them down, Psalms 32, 38, and 51 are great to read. And when you read them, you'll see a mature believer struggling and agonizing with great sin, yet coming to the Lord in repentance, understanding what an offense it is to God. And then we see Paul here repeating his predicament in verses 19 and 20. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And one item of note in these verses, uh, verse 20, it's also in verse 17, is those two words, no longer. This refers to a time before he was saved. Before salvation, it is our inner being that agrees with sin. We agree with sin. The, only the regenerate person can say this, no longer. The unregenerate has nothing in him that is preventing the sin. And in repeating this, also Paul wants to point out to us the complete inability of the law to deliver us. Even though the law is holy and just and good, it cannot save and it cannot sanctify. And like I said before, he's not so concerned to communicate his experience. He wants to show us what the law cannot do and that our only hope is found in verse 4. Look, look over at verse 4 once again. In the beginning of the chapter, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. He wants us to see the sinfulness of sin and understand that the law is to bring us to Christ. And so we've seen the war we have with indwelling sin. But finally, in this section, there's a third war, a third war, starting in verse 21. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." So after looking at the war we have within, where our new nature goes up against our unglorified flesh, and considering how we have this battle with the sin that dwells within us, we now come to the third battle mentioned in this text. It's a battle against the two laws. And Paul mentions another law here, a law that when he wants to do right, evil is right there. And this is not referring to God's law, but it's set up to show a comparison between the two. This law refers to a principle, a rule, a common situation, something that regularly happens. We know what is right, and yet the sinful flesh is right there tempting us to go in another direction. And we know that this is not God's law because God's law is mentioned in the next verse. Paul delights in the good law, in the law of God. And the new nature that he has desires to obey the law. But we see in verse 23 that he is aware of this other law in his body that wages war and desires to hold him captive to the sin that still dwells within him. In Genesis, we see this idea illustrated with Cain 
God said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's a good picture. Sin is crouching. It's lurking, desiring to lead believers to disobey. I love how verse 22 is translated in the New American Standard. Does anybody have that this morning, the New American Standard? One or two of you? Yeah, especially in the 95 and, and earlier versions, it says, For I joyfully concur, the newer versions say agree, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. I think they said that well. The mark of a true believer is a person who has joy. And we see it all over Scripture. We're told to come into the house of the Lord with joy. We're, to, we're told to count and consider the trials that we have. Count it all joy. We're told to rejoice always. And we're told to joyfully agree with God's law. And we briefly mentioned Psalm 119 in our last sermon. It's a great parallel passage. Here's a couple of verses that stick out from it that illustrate this. The psalmist says, In the way of your testimonies, talking about his law. I delight as much as in all riches, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. For your law is my delight. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. Paul says that his inner man, his inner being, his redeemed heart delights in the law of God. And then the word mind, you see it in verse 23, it corresponds to the redeemed inner man that Paul has been talking about here. Remember, he's making a comparison here in this section of the part of us that's been turned into a new creation in Christ versus the sinful flesh that still remains. And 2 Corinthians 4.16 explains it very well. Paul says, do you remember this? So we do not lose what? Heart. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Isn't this true? We know this. The, this body that we have is weak. It's prone to wander. It's wasting away. But our inner self, our heart, our soul, our spirit has been transformed by the work of Christ. The Lord in his faithfulness by the power of the Holy Spirit fills us anew each day. And we're called to ask for that. Holy Spirit, fill us afresh. His mercies are new every morning. And the only other word I want to make note of in these verses is the word captive, because that brings up one of those questions. How can a Christian be captive to sin in verse 23? Other translations say prisoner or the phrase bringing me into captivity. And I want to encourage us together, friends, that as soon as we repent and trust in Christ, we are immediately justified, immediately declared righteous. We are accepted by God and we're ready to meet him. When he calls us, we are ready. But as long as we remain in these bodies that are not redeemed, we will be tempted, we will be prone, we will be captive to sin. Again, in 2 Corinthians, this time in chapter 10, verse 3, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. This is very important. We cannot avoid living in the flesh, in our bodies, but we can and should avoid walking according to flesh and it's in its sinful ways. And Paul says the next verse, he says, we take every thought captive 
to obey Christ. Well, verse 24 and verse 25, this is the culmination of this section because Paul cries out in great emotion that sums up the struggle and the hope we have in Christ. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this struggle, these wars that are waging within him have brought him to the point of anguish, to a point of great honesty as he evaluates himself in light of God's law. He's saying, Lord, compared with you, compared with your good law, I am wretched. I am afflicted. I am a great sinner. And the word in Greek for wretched, it has the meaning of one who endures toil and troubles. And that's why he cries out, who will deliver me from this sinful body? Day by day, I'm burdened with the trouble of sin. Oh, how I wish I would be delivered from it. I long for the day when my salvation will be complete and I will be free from even the presence of sin. We know that the Lord has given us the power over sin, but we are not free from the presence of it. But that's what he's crying out for. One day, I will be free from even the presence of sin. That's what I desire. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And I asked the question earlier, is Paul describing himself at the height of his spiritual maturity? Well, theologians differ on this question. Some would say yes, describing a mature believer. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a man that I look up to, I love, he believes that this passage is barely describing a believer, a brand, brand, brand new believer. Uh, another Scottish Bible commentator, his name is Robert Haldane, he said that men perceive themselves to be sinners in direct proportion as they have previously discovered the holiness of God and his law. And it's a different way to say that the more we grow in faith and the more sanctified we become, the more our sin is so wretched to us. And so that's why I believe that's how Paul can cry out in frustration for deliverance. But you'll notice, right away, he follows it up with a cry of worship. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is the pattern that we see in the Psalms with some of the prophets who had cries of deep distress and probing questions, but yet it was followed by a trust in who God is and an attitude of worship. In chapter 8, we see a glimpse of this as well. Chapter 8, uh, verse 18, if you look at that verse... Uh, He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. As frustrating as our struggle with sin is, as frustrating as, as it is to live in this sinful world, to have trials come our way, even when we feel defeated, it does not compare to the eternal glory that awaits In the previous verse, verse 16, it says that we are his children. We are his heirs. In spite of our ongoing struggle with this body of death, hold on. Hold on, friends, to the truth of who we are in Christ. Like I mentioned, there's not much hope in this chapter. And Paul's emphasis here is not to talk about our future deliverance from sin. He does that other places. But to focus on our ongoing war with sin that is such a trouble to us. This is why he summarizes his points on these two laws in the final sentence of the chapter. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with 
my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And so here we have it. The new redeemed nature that has been given to us desires to serve the Lord, to love his law, and to do what is right. But our fallen, fleshly, sinful body does not have this desire and wants to serve sin. So where are we at this morning, friends? Are we encouraged? Are we discouraged? Well, my hope is that we better understand the role of God's law in showing us our sin and driving us to Christ. I also trust that we better understand how we cannot live up to that standard, how we still live in this sinful flesh. And then also that we have been given new life with new desires. And now we have a battle. Now there is a war. Before there was no battle. There was no war. But now it's been made known to us. We've been made aware of this fight. And we know that our sanctification is an ongoing process, that the Holy Spirit works in us. And one day, one day, we will have final victory, not in ourselves, but through Christ. So be encouraged by that this morning. So as we finish chapter 7, what application points can we take with us? Well, I suggest two. I suggest the following. First, Give proper attention to God's law in your life and in your evangelism. And we saw the importance of this in the last section, that God's law must be used to show the sinfulness of sin. We talked about that. But also in our walks with the Lord. Don't let any hint of antinomianism or anti-law thinking creep in because that's not who we are. We now echo with Paul here. We are ones who delight in God's good law. And then secondly, and most importantly, hold fast to your position in Christ, not your condition of the flesh. We're actually going to sing uh, in just a moment, he will hold me fast because we know that he is the one that does it. But we need to know who we are. We need to be reminded of that. We need to live in that. So hold fast to your position in Christ, not your condition of the flesh. According to chapter 6 and chapter 7, I want you to be encouraged. As we look through these chapters, it describes who we are. And so I made just a list for us to see it in one spot. Here is who we are according to God's word. It says that we've been dead to sin, that we have been baptized into Christ Jesus, that we have been given new life, that we are free from sin, that we are under grace, that we are slaves of righteousness, that we are possessors of eternal life, that we are bearing fruit for God, and we are haters of sin. But it all comes back to us being thankful to Jesus as we echo with Paul. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to end as well uh, with a prayer from the Valley of Vision. So many of these prayers are so so relevant and so important for us. If you don't have one of these, I encourage you to get one. We should get some maybe for the back there so you can get some, but you can look it up yourself. The Valley of Vision, a book full of Puritan prayers. Um, it would be a great time for your own meditation, your own time of worship with the Lord as you're going through the week. But let's bow our heads and close our eyes uh, and pray together. And this prayer is entitled, Yet I Sin." Eternal Father, thou art good beyond all thought. 
But I am vile, wretched, miserable, blind. My lips are ready to confess, but my heart is slow to feel, and my ways reluctant to amend. I bring my soul to thee, break it, wound it, bend it, mold it. Unmask to me sin's deformity, that I may hate it, abhor it, and flee from it. My faculties have been a weapon of revolt against thee. As a rebel, I have misused my strength and served the foul adversary of thy kingdom. Give me grace to bewail my incident folly. Grant me to know that the way of transgressors is hard, that evil paths are wretched paths, that to depart from thee is to lose all good. I have seen the purity and beauty of thy perfect law, the happiness of those in whose heart it reigns, the calm dignity of the walk to which it calls. Yet I daily violate and contempt its precepts. Thy loving spirit strives within me, brings me scripture warnings, speaks in startling providences, allures by secret whispers. Yet I choose devices and desires to my own hurt, impiously resent, grieve, and provoke him to abandon me. All these sins I mourn, lament, and for them cry pardon. Work in me more profound and abiding repentance. Give me the fullness of a godly grief that trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and loves, which is ever powerful and ever confident. Grant that through the tears of repentance I may see more clearly the brightness and glories of the saving cross. That's our prayer this morning, Lord, that we would live in light of the cross, in light of Calvary, in light of what you have done, in rescuing us from our sin, pulling us out of the pit of despair and setting us upon the rock of Christ. And so may we be refreshed and renewed, Lord, in who we are, in you, that we have been foreknown, predestined, called, that you have justified us, that you are sanctifying us, and one day you will complete the work and you will glorify us, and we will be free from these sinful bodies that we live in. Oh, how we long for that day, Lord, and we ask that you would come quickly. We echo the words of the Apostle John at the end of Revelation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's our desire. In the meantime, we know that you'll give us the strength, the grace, and the faith to walk in the Spirit and not to walk in the flesh, in the old way. We worship you now, Lord, as our Savior, as the one who holds us fast, even though we may fail. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.